Amen. Thank you, Robin. And yeah, preschoolers who are going to the preschool class, you are dismissed. Everyone else, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Well, have you guys ever uh, sat on something and had it break on you? Like a chair or a, a stool, just something you're, you sit on, fully expecting it to hold you, and it just gives out on you. And now, now, that can be kind of embarrassing, right? Uh, last summer, or I believe maybe the summer before at mom and dad's house, uh, there were a couple of weeks where there was multiple things I sat on that broke. And uh, whether it was plastic chairs, wooden benches, lawn chairs, they were just giving out on me. Uh, now, when that happens, uh, it does start to make you feel a little self-conscious, right, about some of your life decisions and just where you're at with yourself. Um, but once you can kind of push through that, the other thing it did for me was that the rest of the summer, I would always question everything that I was about to sit down on, right? I mean, you just at least stop to, to think for a moment. Uh, you kind of ask yourself questions like, you know, where was this made? Uh, who made this? Was it made for someone my size? Was it made for a child? You know, what's holding this together? Is it glue because it's previously been broken and someone just kind of glued it back together? Or has this really been solidly made? Essentially, I wanted to know, is this thing that I'm about to sit on, is it strong enough to endure all my weight? And I've trusted some chairs in the past and they did not hold. Can I trust this one, right? We have this... I think we have a stool up here on stage, and we don't know where, what the history is with that. I would never try to sit on that in front of you, right? And many of us, we, we have these same questions and hesitations when it comes to trusting God and resting our full weight upon Him. Because, I mean, we've trusted some people in the past, and they have let us down. Right? And so we come with hesitations, we come with questions, we come with some suspicions to God, wondering if He is really strong enough to hold us up in the end. And so oftentimes, instead of fully trusting Him, we prefer to still trust ourselves a little bit. We kind of do the half, the half sit, right? Where you're kind of, you're sort of sitting, but you're still really, you know, relying on your legs. Or we prefer to build our own structures and systems that we think will hold us up in the end. We nail together our good works and our going to church and, and being better than those around us and kind of the, our, our theological knowledge and our obedience and all these things we try to nail together thinking that they might hold us up in the end. But even then, we're not really sure if our chair is going to hold us up. And you see, the question we must answer this morning is, what do the promises and blessings of God rest upon? What do the promises and blessings of God rest upon? Because by learning what the promises and blessings of God rest upon, we will see what our entire lives must rest upon as well. And in our study of Romans, we're, we're picking up this morning in Romans 4, verse 9. And last week, we, we started into chapter 4. We learned that true happiness or true blessedness, true joyfulness that is, that is real, that is deep, that is durable, it's not found by chasing after the fleeting pleasures of sin, but instead it is found in God. 
And we learned about how through faith that God counts righteousness, this accounting term, that God credits or reckons or imputes his righteousness to our account. We started to see Paul then quote King David from Psalm 32 about how happy and blessed are the ones whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, and happy is the one whom the Lord will not count his sin. We learned last week that the justified are happy. They are blessed because they've been justified. And let's define that word again for us, right? To be justified uh, when God, this doctrine of justification that we've been covering in Romans, it means that God has declared someone right with them, right? Uh, Right with him, excuse me. So to be justified means that God has declared you right in his sight. You've been declared in a right standing with him. And so this morning, as we continue Romans 4, we're going to see who the blessing of justification is for. We will see what the blessing of justification rests upon. And then we will learn what is produced in our lives when we are resting upon something strong enough to hold us up in the end. So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord for his help this morning. Father, we believe that these are your words. And so as we come to your word, God, I do ask that that I would not hinder or get in the way from people, Lord, hearing your truth. So give light, O Lord. Give light to us as we read your word. May it not just inform us, God. May it transform our hearts. May it glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, first, who is the blessing of justification for? Let's pick it up in Romans 4, verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. He's asking the question, is this blessing of justification only for the Jew or is it also for the Gentiles, right? When he refers to the circumcised and uncircumcised, that's who he's talking about here, the Jew and the Gentile. Is this blessing only for one family or is it for all the families of the earth? And he answers this by asking another question, a question of chronology in verse 10. He says, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised. Now remember, we, we've talked about circumcision some in this, in this study of Romans, and we've talked about how some Jews had at this time thought that circumcision was a special magical thing that guaranteed them a rightness with God. Some rabbis had even been teaching that no man who was circumcised could go to hell or face God's judgment ever. And so Paul's trying to dispel this false belief by appealing to the order of Abraham's salvation and showing that his, when his justification actually took place. What does he say there in verse 10? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Right? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That, that happened in Genesis 15. He then received the sign and seal of circumcision in Genesis 17. Now to us, that's only two chapters, and we probably read it on the same day of our Bible reading plan. But in reality, there was at least 14 years separating those two chapters. And so was Abraham unjustified for those 14 years? 
Was he not right with God, standing right before God in those 14 years? Paul's saying no. He believed and he was justified. He believed and he was declared right with God. God's righteousness had been credited to his account and God was now treating him accordingly. His justification did not rest upon circumcision or an outward sign. And therefore, justification is not just for the circumcised or the Jew, but it's for the Gentile as well. But a follow-up question here we need to address is, what was the point of circumcision? And, And look here now at verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. You see, God did have a purpose for this with Abraham and his family, and it was to be an external sign of a greater reality. It was to be a distinguishing mark upon them, living in the midst of a people practicing idolatry. It was ultimately to remind them of the greater need they had, that they needed God to do surgery on their heart, right? Their hearts needed to be circumcised. It was also to point them to the coming Messiah who would take sin upon his flesh and willingly be cut off from the presence of the Father. It was to be an external sign and seal of what God had promised them. When you think of seal, think of a king with a, with a ring issuing a decree, right? And then, and then taking the wax on the envelope and sealing it with his signet ring. But the sign is not the primary thing of importance. It was supposed to be a humbling thing for the people of God, and they had become prideful about it. They had started resting upon it. But it was the sign that was pointing to something, a greater reality of more importance. When we are uh, driving on I-65 and coming back to Franklin, I always get excited when I see the sign for Franklin, right? Two miles away, one mile away. That's a good feeling, right? I mean, I always, always question why we ever leave Franklin, all right? But the, th- the reason that I get excited, all right, is not so much that the sign that says Franklin is all that great. It's what the sign is pointing me to, right? It's, it's the, the reminder and that pointing me to Franklin is where my home is and where my family is, right? And so that's why I get excited. It's not the sign itself. Signs are great, but they are pointing us to greater realities, and so we, we have a handful of people right now who are preparing for baptism. And baptism is one of the signs that God has given New Covenant believers that points to a greater reality. And we believe that it isn't baptism that saves you or justifies you. It's pointing to a greater reality. It's pointing to the fact that you've already been justified before. Baptism points to the reality that Jesus has already baptized you with the Holy Spirit. The person we're baptizing, is, it's pointing to the fact that they've already been united with Christ in His death and resurrection. That this person has, through faith, already had righteousness credited to their account. Right? It's a sign that God has already given this person this gracious gift and this blessing of justification. That they have been declared right with Him. It's an external sign of a greater reality. When we take the Lord's Supper, 
It's an external sign of a greater reality. It's pointing us to our dependence upon Jesus for redemption. That he is the only one who can redeem us. It's pointing us to Jesus, that he's the one that is going to have to nourish us and sustain us. When we look up and see a rainbow in the sky, it's a sign, a great reminder of what God has already promised. He's promised to never again destroy the earth by a worldwide flood. And even when we see obedience developing in our lives, even when we see a greater love for God and love for others in our lives, even that can be an external sign of a greater reality that God is doing in our hearts. But listen, church, the sign itself is not what we trust in and not what we rest upon. So in understanding Paul's line of argument and answering the question, who is this blessing for? He's saying, hey, if it, it wasn't through circumcision or the law or any external sign that someone is justified, it is through faith. And people from all the families of the earth are going to come to share in the faith that Abraham had. Look, look back at uh, verse 11. He says, the purpose... Verse 11, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And all the Gentiles in the room said, amen, amen. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. You see, the children's song is accurate. Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham, right? You see, God had a, a bigger purpose in calling Abraham than just one family or just one ethnicity. God's purpose in calling and justifying Abraham was so that through one of his offspring, namely Jesus Christ, that all the families of the earth could be blessed. That all the families of the earth might receive the blessing of justification, that righteousness might be counted to Gentiles as well, that he might be the father of the Gentiles who share this faith and the father of the Jews who aren't just trusting the signs they have, but who walk by faith as well. And so here we answer the first question, who is the blessing of justification for? It's for all people, both Jew and Gentile, who share the faith of Abraham. And the faith of Abraham is not a faith that rests upon external signs or works, but it is a faith that rests upon the greater realities that these things point us to, you see. The blessing of justification comes through a faith that is not resting upon keeping the commands of God. It's a faith that is not resting on the fact that you were baptized. It's a faith that is not resting upon the fact that you raised a hand or walked an aisle or that you take the Lord's Supper or that you're a good person or that you go to church. But what is this faith and blessing of justification resting upon? Look back at Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, before we get to what the blessing rests upon, let's first see that the blessing of justification is also paired up here with the blessing of adoption. Adoption. 
For if we share in the faith of Abraham, not only are we justified, but we are also adopted into the family of Abraham. And as adopted sons and daughters, we have a promise of an inheritance. What does verse 13 say? Look, look back. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. That word heir, it means a secure possessor. And we know that Christ is the offspring of Abraham, who alone is worthy of this great inheritance. And just like God chose one man and one family, that through him all the families of the earth will be blessed, so too God promises one plot of land to Abraham and his offspring that will be fulfilled through Christ's dominion over the entire world. For Christ is the one true heir of the world. We learned about this in Hebrews, right? In Hebrews 1, verse 2, which we'll have up here on the screen. When we were preaching through Hebrews, we talked about this some. It says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Christ has been appointed to inherit the world. And get this. Through faith, we are united with him and become co-heirs. Later in our study of Romans, in Romans 8, verse 16, we're going to see this. He's going to say the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Church, you see this blessing of justification, this blessing of being declared right with God is also to be understood alongside the blessing of adoption. That we have been adopted into God's family and are co-heirs with Christ. Yes, we stand right with him right now, but the promise and the blessing of adoption, it really secures our future. Right? The blessing is even greater than just being declared with God, right with God right now. This blessing comes with a promise for the future. This blessing comes with a change of our identity, for we have been brought into the royal family. What a blessing! The blessing of justification and adoption. But what does this blessing rest upon? That's still what we need to answer. Verse 14. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Now Paul is not saying here that where there is no law, there is no sin. He touches on this in other places that sin still existed before the law was given. His main point here is that the, the simply possessing the law is not what justifies us. Right? The law shows us our sin. The law shows us where we have transgressed God's commands. He's saying those who have the law are actually even more responsible for keeping it, or at the very least, seeing their lack of ability to keep it and their need to cry out for a Savior. If it was those who kept the law that were to be co-heirs with Christ, then faith is empty and the promise is worthless. That's what he's saying. But that's not the case. Verse 16 he says, that is why it depends on faith, 
in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. Church, you see, the blessing of justification, the blessing of adoption, it comes to us through a faith that is resting on God's grace. God's undeserved favor. Church, it is God's undeserved favor towards us. That is what the promise and the blessing of our justification and our adoption, that is what they rest upon. It does not rest upon our works. It comes to us through faith, but it doesn't even rest upon our faith. It does not rest upon our families. It does not rest upon our power. It does not rest upon our obedience. It rests upon God's grace. And because it rests upon God's grace, it can be guaranteed to all who share the faith of Abraham. We have a a playset in our backyard that I put together for the boys a few years ago, and all the neighborhood kids come and play on it. And I make sure their parents know that I do not guarantee my work. Right? My, my, my building abilities do not come with a money-back guarantee. Right? If you come over or if you're in my city group, it's getting warmer outside. The kids might be outside some. Listen, I'm telling you, your kids play at their own risks. It's just understood. Right? I'm not handy. My toolbox consists of duct tape, super glue, a hammer, and a checkbook to eventually call and hire someone to do what I started out trying to do. But listen, if the blessing of justification and adoption, if it rests upon our works, then there's no guarantees, right? But if it rests upon God's grace, it is guaranteed by God himself to all who share the faith of Abraham. Do you believe this, church? Do you believe it? That your justification, your being declared right with God, that your adoption, that you're now part of the family of God, do you believe really that it rests upon the grace of God? If you do, Or when you start to believe this, some beautiful things start to transform in your life, right? When your life rests upon the grace of God, you you stop living so much like an orphan and you start living like a son or daughter of the king, right? When, When you believe that your adoption rests upon God's grace, you will stop living like an orphan and you will start living like a child of God. And here's what I mean, all right? An orphan, an orphan lives anxiously wondering if their performance will produce a brighter future for them. Always anxious. 
An orphan lives like no one loves them or has accepted them, always trying to get attention and approval from others because they haven't found it from a loving father. An orphan lives a life marked by self-preservation, as if they have to look out for themselves constantly because no one else is. An orphan lives as if there are no guarantees in life. There's no inheritance coming. An orphan has never experienced the joy of resting their full weight upon God's grace because they're not sure if they can fully trust Him. But a child of God whose adoption rests upon God's grace They can live with a peace that surpasses all understanding, knowing that they are secure possessors of a glorious future. A child of the king lives like one who has already been perfectly loved and entirely welcomed and accepted by God and the presence of God, right? A child of the king lives a life free from the pursuit of self-preservation, but instead they are free to love others sacrificially. A child of the king knows that there will still be some uncertainties in life, but they have some glorious guarantees from God. Like for those in the family of God, all things will work together for good. A child of the king can experience daily the glorious joy of resting their entire weight and life and future upon God's grace. But it's tough to rest your entire life upon God's grace, isn't it? And why is that? And I think one of the reasons, at least maybe one of the reasons that are not helping us, is that we live in a time where we've heard teaching over and over that has really emphasized God's love, God's personal relationship with us, God's closeness to us, that He's our personal Savior and Lord. And listen, I would say yes and amen to all those things. But because we have emphasized so much of the closeness of God, we have misconstrued that for the smallness of God. We've taught so much about his relatability, which is good and true, and we need that. But let's not misconstrue that as that he's small, that he's weak. And we talk so much about, you know, Jesus kind of getting up on the little throne of our hearts. Like there's just like a little little throne, this small, and he kind of climbs up there. That's where he sits, right here. And what this has produced, I fear, is a generation of cowardly, anxious, and fearful Christians who are discipling an even more cowardly, anxious, and fearful Christians who are raising kids with others saying, wow, I'm glad I don't have to raise kids in this culture. And it just feeds the belief that God is small, that Jesus is just our little personal Lord and Savior. We now live in a generation that can believe that God loves us. We're just not sure He's powerful enough to do anything about it. 
And so I don't mind you using the language of Jesus being on the throne of your heart, okay? I'm, not, I'm okay with that if you're emphasizing that every man, woman, and child needs to come to personal faith and repentance. I believe that. But understand this. Christ does not just sit on the throne of your heart. He sits on the throne of heaven. Amen. And the earth is his footstool. Amen. And all his enemies will be subdued. And he's strong and he's powerful. And I'm telling you, you can rest your entire weight and life and salvation upon his grace. He's strong enough to hold. His grace is sufficient. And we must trust him more, church. We must throw our weight and our life and everything upon his grace more. But our faith is often so weak faith is often so weak. And here's where we need to see now what is produced in our lives as we are resting upon the grace of a strong and powerful God. What is produced in our lives when we're resting upon the grace of a strong and powerful God? Look back at Romans 4 verse 17. He says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom you believed. Now, now look at how powerful he is. He says, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's a strong and powerful God, church. Our God is strong and powerful. He gives life to the dead and he calls things into existence that do not exist. He's essentially saying here, right, he's the God of resurrection and he's the God of creation. If you ever struggle to remember the power of God, remind yourself of creation and resurrection. If God is strong enough and powerful enough to create everything from nothing, if he's powerful enough to give life to the dead, I'm telling you, he's powerful enough to be able to handle your anxiety. Cast it on him. He's powerful enough to strengthen you in your marriage or in your singleness. He's the God who can create. He's the God who can resurrect. Jeremiah, he remembers this when he prays in Jeremiah 32, verse 17. He says, Oh, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. Do you believe this? Think, think to yourself, what's What's something right now that you think is too hard for God to do? And confess that to God. Nothing is too hard for Him. He's the God who alone can give life to the dead, and He calls things into existence out of nothing. And so do not listen to teaching that would make God seem smaller, okay? Closer, fine, but not smaller. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think he gives us some good practical wisdom as we are assessing all these different ideas about God that get thrown at us from every, which, uh, every different direction. 
He says, uh, and we have it here up on the screen, he says, a very good way of testing any view that you may hold is this one. Is this view humbling to me and glorifying to God? If it is, it's probably right. You won't go far wrong if whatever you view you're holding is glorifying to God and humbling to man. But if your view seems to glorify you and humble God, well, there's no need to argue or go into details. It's wrong. (laughs) Now, this isn't scripture, all right? This is a a quote from a man that I, I respect, right? But you see... So many teachings get thrown at us, and, and, and obviously it needs to be lined up with Scripture. We need to go to Scripture and compare and hear what we're t- uh, hearing. We need to go to the community of faith and pastors and city group leaders and talk through some of these things. But a good kind of quick check just to see, hey, is something off here? Is, is this view humbling to me and glorifying to God? Or is this humbling to God and glorifying to me. And if it's in that category, I'm telling you, mankind loves to come up with teaching that falls in that category. And you see, when we give glory to man, and when we glorify ourselves, this actually serves to weaken our faith. But when we give glory to God as we recognize his greatness and his power and his strength, this is how our faith is strengthened. Right? As we learn to believe that our salvation, our justification, our adoption, all the blessings we have in Christ, both now and in the future, rest upon the grace of a strong God. As we learn to believe this, our faith will become stronger. Look look back at verse 18. It says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now we can read that on first read and maybe think Paul has never read the book of Genesis or actually studied the life of Abraham. Because if you go and read, it would seem to us that Abraham's faith did waver, right? He certainly had times where he questioned God or he was confused about what God was promising and how it was going to get fulfilled. He had a couple of times where he lies about Sarah, right? Because he was fearful of what could happen. He tries to take things into his own hands by sleeping with Hagar. But what Paul has in mind here is not that Abraham had a perfect faith. He did not. Paul's saying he did not have a perfect faith, but the object of his faith remained the same, and his faith was strengthened over time as he gave glory to God. 
It wasn't a faith that turned to other gods, right? He didn't start calling out to false gods to try to have a kid. No, as imperfect as, as his faith might have been, it was a faith that was strengthened as he gave glory to God. And may the same be said of our faith as well, church. It was through this faith that God justified him. God credited to his account righteousness. Look at verse 23. If you think that this, all this stuff happening with Abraham has nothing to do with us, in Romans 4.23 it says, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, it is through faith, through trusting in Christ alone, that we receive a righteousness from God, a rightness with God. It's credited to our account. For Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, came to earth, lived the perfect life of obedience that we failed to live. He kept the law and fulfilled the law. He then went to the cross. He was delivered over for our trespasses and sins. And on the cross, he took our sins. He paid the penalty for them. He released us from sin's power, and then he gave us his righteousness. And three days later, he came back to life. And it was in the resurrection that the Father showed that he had accepted Christ's death as a sufficient atonement for our sin. The wrath against the sin of the people, all of God's people, had been appeased and satisfied. And therefore, the resurrection, it vindicated Christ, showing he was who he said he was, but it justified us because it showed the Father's approval of the Son. And if through faith, right, we are then united to Christ, then we are approved by the Father as well. Church, our God is a powerful and a strong God, a God who creates and a God who resurrects. He is not a God who helps people who help themselves. He is, he is a God who resurrects dead people and makes them alive. He's a God who takes hearts filled with sin and he creates clean hearts. And he is more glorified and pleased when we trust him more and more. When we rest upon his grace and not our works. And you see, there's this beautiful cycle then of, of a strengthening faith that happens in the believer. It's that as we trust him more in every aspect of our lives, as we trust him more, we actually then experience more firsthand that nothing is too hard for him. And as a result of experiencing that firsthand, our faith is strengthened. And as a result of our faith being strengthened, we glorify him more by trusting and enjoying him more. And as we trust and enjoy him more, we experience more firsthand that nothing is too hard for him. And when we experience that nothing is too hard for him, our faith is strengthened. You see, it's a cycle. And this is what we need, church. We need our faith to be strengthened, not just so we can be happier and healthier, but so that we might glorify him more. 
Because I have sat down and broken things in the past when I've put my full weight on them. And I might be hesitant to put my weight on anything else. I wonder if it's going to hold. And maybe you're the same way, right? Maybe you've fully trusted a parent and they have completely let you down. Maybe you have fully trusted a friend and they deserted you and abandoned you. Maybe you fully trust yourself and you have disappointed yourself every day. And so you're hesitant to really glorify God by resting your entire life and salvation upon His grace. But when we fully trust that our justification and adoption rests upon God's grace, it's a beautiful and a freeing thing. We know that it's guaranteed because it's guaranteed by the work of Christ, not our own. I love that my boys are still uh, small enough Uh, that they do not question if I'm strong enough to catch them. They just run and jump. They run and jump and just put their full weight on my lap. They just put their full weight into into my arms, right? They know that their father is still strong enough to hold them. It's not a blind leap of faith in the dark. It's a jump of faith into the arms of a strong father who's strong enough to hold them. And I love C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia. When Lucy returns to Narnia and she greets Aslan, she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And Aslan says, that's because you're older, little one. Not because you are, Lucy says. He says, I'm not. But each year you grow, you'll find me bigger. Whatever your view of God was when you walked in here this morning, I'm telling you, it was not great enough. He's greater and bigger than you thought he was. His grace is stronger and more wonderful than you thought it was. And as you trust him more, and as you grow up in the faith, you will not find him to be smaller and weaker. You will find him to be bigger and stronger and more gracious than you ever imagined. Church, do you believe that you can rest your entire justification, your entire right standing with God? Can it be rested upon His grace and not your works? Do you believe that your adoption, your new identity, your new status, your future inheritance, can it be rested entirely upon His grace? Has your faith been growing stronger as you glorify Him? Are you trusting Him more now than you did a year ago? Nothing is too hard for Him, church. And so may our faith be strengthened as we glorify Him and rest more and more upon His grace this morning. Let's pray.